Welcome to this podcast from Harvest Community Church of Huntersville, North Carolina, where our vision is to make disciples who make disciples. I'm your host, Liz Stefanini. What do a popular American actress and a theologian from Croatia have in common? Both of them have wrestled with how God can be both loving and judge. In 2015, the magazine Vanity Fair published an article uh, on the actress Jessica Alba. Uh, She had apparently decided to become a Christian at age 12, but at age 17, she was turned off by the boundaries and labels set by fellow churchgoers. That year, she attended an acting workshop in Vermont, and she, quote, fell crazy in love with a cross-dressing ballet dancer who had a baby and was bisexual. I was like, there's just no way he's going to hell. Acting opened to her a new world of creative people in a community where she felt like she belonged. And and she said, I felt like at the end of the day, God is love and everyone is human. Now, many people in our culture hold a view like she expressed that God, if he is a God of love, does not or will not judge sin. Well, the Christian theologian from Croatia, Miroslav Volf, also once rejected the concept of God's wrath. He thought that the idea of an angry God was barbaric and it was completely unworthy of a God of love. But then his country experienced a brutal war. People committed terrible atrocities against their neighbors and countrymen. In his book, free of charge, uh, he revealed his new understanding about the necessity of God's wrath. He said, my last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a casualty of the war in the former Yugoslavia, the region from which I come. According to some estimates, 200,000 people were killed and over 3 million were displaced. My villages and cities were destroyed. My people shelled day in and day out, some of them brutalized beyond imagination. And I cannot imagine God not being angry. Or think of Rwanda in the last decade of the past century, where 800,000 people were hacked to death in 100 days. How did God react to the carnage? By doting on the perpetrators in a grandfatherly fashion? By refusing to condemn the bloodbath, but instead affirming the perpetrator's basic goodness? Wasn't God fiercely angry with them? Though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because God is love. Now, God indeed is a God of love. And the surprising news, perhaps for some, is that he can be both love and judge at the same time. It's all there in the prophecy Zephaniah, the fourth book from the end of the Old Testament. And that's our focus today. We're going to look at Zephaniah three fourteen to 17 as we continue in the 40 days of prayer here at Harvest. Sing, daughter of Zion, shout aloud, Israel. 
Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, daughter Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. On that day, they will say to Jerusalem, Do not fear, Zion. Do not let your hands hang limp. The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. Well, here's God's word for us today. It's actually not very clear. Um, The words are there, but you have to set them against the proper background in order to really grasp them. And similarly, the words God is love, you need to set against the proper background in the Bible and in Zephaniah. And in Zephaniah, that's a context of judgment. So they're both there. Here today is a timeline that we're going to be looking at. We're going to be walking through this as we go through this message. Zephaniah is prophesying in the about 700 years before Jesus came about the day of the Lord and ultimately about the final day of the Lord. So we'll we'll take note of that uh, as we as we go through here. Let's let me give you just a quick overview to help you understand the context of this amazing statement about God's love. Well, Zephaniah's message, uh, I've divided it up into kind of three major points. The first one is that on the day of the Lord, God is going to judge all people, including his own covenant people. Uh, This was written, as I said, 700 years before Christ came to the southern kingdom of Israel, which was known as Judah. The 10 northern tribes had already been dispersed by Assyria, and Assyria was still oppressing Judah. It was about to be taken over uh, by the Babylonians. But this prophecy opens with one of the most dramatic prophetic statements from God found anywhere in the Bible. Chapter 1, verse 2, I will sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away both man and beast. I will sweep away the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea and the idols that cause the wicked to stumble. When I destroy all mankind on the face of the earth, declares the Lord, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all who live in Jerusalem. I will destroy every remnant of Baal worship in this place. The very name of the idolatrous priest, those who bow down on the roofs to worship the starry host, those who bow down and swear by the Lord and who also swear by Molech. You know, these people of Judah, God's people, they profess allegiance to the Lord, but all while they're professing allegiance to the Lord, they're they're bowing down to the sun and the stars like the heathen nations around them. And they swore allegiance to the Ammonite god Moloch. So that was a big deal because Baal mentioned earlier and Moloch, they required child sacrifice and they had male and female prostitutes and they connected worship with sexual orgies. One writer puts it this way, worshiping God and something else is is not worshiping God at all. They weren't worshiping God. They were patronizing him. And so the verse continues, verse six, those who turn back from following the Lord and neither 
seek the Lord nor inquire of him. Do they believe in God? Supposedly. Did they pray or seek God? No. Could we call them practical atheists? Yes. They marginalize God. Uh, verse 12 of chapter 1 calls them complacent. And when people turn away from God, they also mistreat others. And the people of that day definitely oppressed others. So 114 says, the great day of the Lord is near, near and coming quickly. So looking at that timeline again, here's Zephaniah. He he prophesied during the reign of a, a young king named Josiah, and that was between 640 and 609 B.C. Uh, Josiah assumed the, wrong, the, the reigns, uh, uh, the throne in Judah at eight years old. He came to power during a terrible time. Rulers before him like Manasseh and Ammon had destroyed the country. Um, and after several years in office, Zephaniah just uh, or, or Josiah really started making some positive changes, some positive godly reforms. But seemingly when Zechariah was writing this, either the reforms had just begun or they had not gone far enough. Maybe even Zephaniah's words helped speed them along. And you see there uh, the day of the Lord that he's prophesying about. It actually happened in 586. Uh, a few years later, after the prophecy was written, the Babylonians attacked and invaded Jerusalem, and they took many people into exile. They returned, destroyed Jerusalem, its walls, and Solomon's temple. That is the context and the flavor of Zephaniah's prophecy. But all is not lost yet. Yes, and what a context it is uh, here in Zephaniah. And all is not lost. Because we move into the second major movement uh, in the book. And that is that God will purify his own people. And the redeemed will rejoin regathered Israel in the service and blessing of God. We see that starting in the second chapter going to the end of the book. Now, in chapter 2, Zephaniah names other surrounding nations that will also be subject to God's judgment. Uh, Philistia, Moab, and Ammon, Cush. Chapter 3 comes back to Jerusalem and talks about how they have followed corrupt leaders and not re repented. But then there's a glimmer of hope. As God talks about a remnant of people that he will change and use, he will rescue and redeem. In other words, God's coming judgment, that's the flavor of this whole prophecy. It's, it's going to be twofold. It is going to be, on the one hand, to pour out his wrath for the sake of justice. But it's also going to be to change or cleanse humanity. And chapter 3 tells us that, at some point in the future, God plans to return the people he purifies, his remnant to Jerusalem. They will serve him. They will rejoice in God. Ze Zephaniah 3, 9. Then I will purify the lips of the peoples that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve him shoulder to shoulder. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, my scattered people will bring me offerings. On that day, you, Jerusalem, will not be put to shame for all the wrongs you have done to me because I will remove you, your arrogant boasters. But I will leave within you the meek and the humble, 
the remnant of Israel will trust in the name of the Lord. Now, historically, not too many years after the prophecy, Judah was indeed able to return. Uh, some started coming back to the land sooner. Uh, in uh, There was a man named Cyrus in 539 B.C. who united the, Mer- the Median and the Persian empires. He defeated Babylon. And, and the very next year, 538, he declared that the decrees, uh, the decree that that the Jews could return to Jerusalem and they could rebuild the temple. So that's what's pictured here. Zephaniah prophesies about the day of the Lord, this, this, this exile that happens, but then they return. And I put 516, not when the original ones started uh, uh, moving there, but 516 was when the temple was actually rebuilt. So God's judgment on Judah in 586 was indeed a day of the Lord. But prophecy doesn't all get uh, fulfilled all at once. And sometimes there it prefigures something greater, a greater day of the Lord. And that's exactly what's happening here. It is prefiguring a final day of the Lord. So if we look at the uh, uh, at the screen, at the this timeline, while Zephaniah truly and really prophesied the day of the Lord that was going to happen uh, in 586, out in the future, at an undetermined time, there there's a final day of the Lord. And you notice there are dates on all these others. There's just a question mark there. I, my wonderful assistant, Nikki, I told her to put the date down what on the final day of the Lord, when that would appear, but she, she wasn't willing to do that. So we just put a question mark because... Just joking. Obviously, none of us know when that exact day is. But this is what is out in the future. And in fact, the New Testament picks this up. Second Peter chapter three, verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. John Stott writes, we see the malice, cruelty, power, and arrogance of the evil men who persecute. We also see the sufferings of the people of God who are opposed, ridiculed, boycotted, harassed, imprisoned, tortured, and killed. In other words, we see injustice, the wicked flourishing, the righteous suffering. It seems completely topsy-turvy. We inveigh against this miscarriage of justice. Why doesn't God do something we complain indignantly? And the answer, of course, of Zephaniah and Peter and the steady witness of the Bible is he will. He will. Now, back to Zephaniah. In the midst of two and a half chapters of judgment come some encouraging words from God. 
The God who judges also loves and delights in his people. That's in 3, 14 to 20. And our passage today, 14 to 17, we, we see God speaking about his forgiveness and his love. Verse 17, the Lord your God is with you. The mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. So we ask the question as we put the timeline back up. What about us? We're, we're living somewhere in between 516 B.C. and that question mark, that time when the final day of the Lord comes in. Obviously, it, it's not, we're not pinpointing where on the chart we are because we don't know. But that's the question. What about us? Now that we understand the basic message of Zephaniah and its affirmation in the New Testament, let's go back to our primary text for today, Zephaniah 3, 14 to 17, to compare the then and now as we draw out applications for ourselves today. And verse 14 had said, sing, daughter, Zion, shout aloud, Israel, be glad and rejoice with all your heart, daughter, Jerusalem. This was a call for God's people of Zephaniah's day to rejoice. But of course, it's God's word. And as God's word, it becomes a call for those of us today who are part of God's people to rejoice as well. Those who are saved by faith in Jesus Christ, we should rejoice. And there are three reasons put forth in these verses about why we should rejoice. The first reason is because God is sufficient to take care of our strongest enemy, which is sin. Verse 15. The Lord has taken away your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. For the people of God that were living in Judah in the 7th century B.C., God purified them and defeated their physical enemy, Assyria, then, then Babylon. Jerusalem prophetically would, was going to be defiled. Zephaniah spoke about it. He spoke how it would be defiled. And it was, it came true, but it, it also would be cleansed. And then it would become home to the king who would remove all of their fears. That's what it meant then for the people of God. What it means today is for people who are Christians by virtue of their faith in Jesus Christ, God takes care of our strongest enemy. Now it could be Satan. Obviously Satan is an incredibly strong enemy, but Satan and sin are so linked uh, together, and the passage seems to focus in specifically on sin, and so I've noted it as sin here. Jesus paid for our sin with his own life, his own blood. Our sin required a payment. You know, if I don't like the fence that my neighbor has in his yard, he goes on vacation, and I decide, ah, I'm going to tear the fence down. I'm guilty. And there's no such thing as cheap forgiveness. He's not going to come home and say, oh, I forgive you. That's okay. No repayment. No, he, he might have me arrested. He might demand that I pay to build the new fence. Wrong always carries a price. Sin always creates a debt. And the price of our sin is eternal separation from God in hell. And so let's look at the chart again. You can see on this timeline, Zephaniah spoke about a day of the Lord, but there's actually 
another day of the Lord now. There's a final day of the Lord that is ultimately in view. But watch what happens here. Along the way, before that day of the Lord comes, we add one more thing to the chart. <laughs> we add the cross of Jesus Christ. Because in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, uh, Paul, the apostle, writes, God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Through Jesus, we not only escape from God's judgment, but we are made right with God. We are made members of his family. We are made heirs of God, co-heirs of Jesus Christ. We are made participants in his joy and salvation. And that's why this, this statement to them, uh, if, I, if I go back, that God is sufficient to take care of our strongest enemy. That's what he did on the cross of Jesus Christ. Secondly, second reason to rejoice here is because God is with us. God is with us as the passage continues. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. On that day, they will say to Jerusalem, do not fear, Zion. Do not let your hands hang limp. The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. Fear paralyzed them. <laughs> and of course, it paralyzes us. Judah was afraid of, of these nations around them, but God rescued them from that. He freed them from the kind of fear that would make their hands hang limp <laughs> in despondency. Uh, what is it that helps us overcome fear the most? Verse 17, it's knowing that God is with us. Not just any God, but the God who is a mighty warrior who fights on our behalf. That's what they saw physically. They saw a mighty warrior fighting for them and overcoming their physical enemy and rescuing their city. <laughs> That's the way God's pictured in the Bible. Think of Israel escaping 400 years of bondage in Egypt as they cross the Red Sea and they cry out in, in Exodus, the Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. God fights for us and he saves us. He is mighty to save. He was with his remnant in Judah and he is always with his people. Now, if you are a Christian today, this word is true for you. The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. And then the third reason is that God takes great delight in us. He will take great delight in you in his love. He will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. The NIV translates this, in his love, he will no longer rebuke you. Uh, some translations render it appropriately. He will quiet you with his love. You know, in the Hebrew language uh, that the Old Testament was written in, there are different words for love. Most commonly, the love of God is expressed by the word hesed. It speaks of covenant love or covenant loyalty that God has for his people. It's a love that resides in the will and uh, uh, as well as the heart. So we're so thankful. Uh, it's so important that God has that kind of love towards his people. But a different word. In the original is used here. Um, it's the word Ahava. And, and it has 
a sense of a strong emotion or affection attached to it. Uh, in other places, it's used, for instance, uh, for the passionate love that Jacob had for Rachel, Genesis 29, or Michael had for David in 1 Samuel 18, or the fond love that Jacob had for his son Joseph, Genesis 37, Jonathan's deep friendship with David in 1 Samuel 18, or even the psalmist's great delight in the law of the Lord when he said, oh, how I love your law in Psalm 1, Now, I haven't been on any women's retreats, and I'm sure you're glad of that, but I have been on several men's retreats. Harvest has had many of those, and I don't remember a lot of details about them, but there are a few significant moments through the years that stand out to me, and one of them was a few years ago when we were having some sharing, and, and one of the guys just stood up, and he was overwhelmed with this truth in Zephaniah 3.17 that God will take great delight over you, that he will rejoice over you with singing. The fact that God would sing over us in tenderness. This is, this is tender. I, you know, I miss my dad. My dad went to heaven a few years ago. He delighted over his family. Uh, there were just two, two children, my sister and I. But, you know, when you were with my dad, you always felt like you were the most important person in the world when you're around him. That's the way he made you feel. He, he also delighted in his grandchildren. His, his eyes would light up when they were around. Uh, Tish's mom, who's in heaven too, was the same way, the way she felt about the grandchildren. Um, I, I've watched two of my three uh, adult sons are married. I've watched them they've do, as they've uh, had families now and and children, so I watch them relate to their children. I see, I see the delight that's there. I see it in their eyes, in their words, in their actions, in their hugs, and sometimes in their discipline too. Now, like many people who are not grandparents, I used to not be able to understand why grandparents just gushed over their grandchildren. You know, it's kind of disgusting, isn't it? Well, now I'm one of them, <laughs> and I understand it. I delight in my grandchildren. I, I love everything about them. I love their little feet, their toes, their walks, their laughs, their smiles, their personalities. Uh, I, 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 just, I just delight in them. I can't explain it other than the fact that I, I delight in them. You know, I saw a special expression of this a few years ago with one of my best friends, one of my best friends in life. Um, Tish and I flew back to Chicago to go to a wedding of his son. In fact, this was a son that our kids, our boys grew up around. He was getting married. And, you know, at the reception, you know, how you have everything uh, there, the food, the dancing, everything, and then the toast. And, and my friend Jeff stood up and looked at his son and he said, Josh, I'm, I'm just so proud of you. I want you to know that I have never been disappointed in you. Oh, man, the delight from a father to his son was, was so special. That's, that's delight. Now, let me ask you a question. How does God feel about you today? How does God feel about you? I, I didn't ask how do you feel about yourself. How does your angry neighbor feel about you? How does your children or spouse, when they're upset or distant, feel about you? I didn't ask you, 
how your parent or teacher or coach or boss that seemingly you could never please feels about you. How does God feel about you? Well, this passage makes it really clear. He loves you. He delights over you. He sings over you. The same one who judges the nations delights over you. Regardless of how faithful, good, successful, productive, or kind you've been this past week, this past month, this past year, God still delights over you. Oh, yes, God hates sin, but as his child, he delights in you. And that's why he fights for you as a warrior. So you see what the secular mind conceives as an either or either God can only have love or God can only be a judge. The Bible presents as a both and. The judge loves. The judge loves. So let me ask the question. How should we respond today? Let me give you two ways. First of all, worship God. That's that's so clear. That comes out loud and clear in this passage. Remember verse 14. Sing, daughter of Zion, or daughter Zion. Shout aloud, Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, daughter Jerusalem. Our response to this amazing God who is holy and a judge, but who delights in us and sings over us, our response is to worship him. Trevin Wax says the God who is truly scary is not the wrathful God of the Bible, but the God who closes his eyes to the evil of this world, shrugs his shoulders and ignores it in the name of love. What kind of love is this? A God who is never angered at sin and who lets evil go by by unpunished is not worthy of worship. But God is worthy of worship. Some of you might have a hard time rejoicing in God's love over you. You might have a hard time with really being free to worship because of shame. (laughs) Your sin, addiction, family problems, or doubts plague you. But hear God say in verse 19, we didn't read it, but verse 19 says, I will give them praise and honor in every land where they have suffered shame. God delights in his people and he's got a plan. Second response We look to the New Testament to get it. And it's based on the fact that God is love. And that is to pray for our enemies. Pray for our enemies. Look, Jesus is giving words to us in Matthew chapter 5. And look what he says in verse 43. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. See that? Pray, love your enemies and pray for them. Why? So that you can be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward do you get? Or not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your people, your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, this is not saying be morally perfect because none of us can be morally perfect in this life. We're positionally perfect, but it's not going to be until heaven that we are 
morally perfect, but we can be perfect in love, and that's what he's calling for us to be. God is kind and loving to both the unjust and the, and the just in, in certain respects of common grace like rain and sun. God's perfection in love is given here as a reason for us to love too. To love like God did and to pray for those that persecute us. Now, most of us are not going to face the kind of physical persecution that Jesus first hears would likely face. Literal physical persecution. So we would apply it to those that are difficult to love. Maybe somebody who's mistreated you or gossiped about you, betrayed you walked out on you, said hateful things to you, spread false information about you. It's so easy to ignore them or hate them or try to get them back. But Jesus says, pray for them. God is love. We worship, but we also pray for our enemies. So here's God's word. And again, you see it's shaded without the background. You can't really fully grasp it, but with the background, it's crystal clear because God, the judge delights in you worship and pray because God, the judge delights in you worship and pray. And we looked at Zephaniah at this prediction about the day of the Lord, the one that came first uh, when Jerusalem was sacked and the people were exiled. But this great final day. Let me let me close by giving you a quote from Frederick Buechner. The New Testament proclaims that at some unforeseeable time in the future, God will ring down the final curtain on history and there will come a day on which all our days and all the judgments upon us and all our judgments upon each other will themselves be judged. The judge will be Christ. In other words, the one who judges us most finally will be the one who loves us most fully. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we give you praise for who you are today. We are trying to learn in these moments these 40 days of prayer, how who you are shapes our prayers. So as we as we revel in your love, help us to worship you and God help us to pray for those that it's difficult for us to pray for in love. We pray for our brothers and sisters all over the world that are persecuted, that you'll help them too. in Jesus name. Amen. Well, let me just mention the discussion questions that we'll use in our virtual fellowship Sunday Next week, uh, virtual prayer at 7.30 in the morning. And this Sunday, in all three of our services, two live ones and our virtual one, we'll pray for those in our body whose last name uh, run from Powers to TRE. God bless you. Thanks again for joining us today from Harvest Community Church. This podcast is also available on our website, harvestcharlotte.com. Please go there if you want to send a question or comment, learn more about our ministries, or find out how you can donate to support the podcast.